right. Uh, good morning, everybody. Great to see you guys as spring break is winding down and as the skies are cloudy, you had a bunch of things uh, you could have been doing this morning, and we're just grateful that you decided to come and be here with us together. And appreciate those last songs that we sung, right? Especially the final one, It Is Well. That song has been sung maybe not by any of some of you before, first time you sang it, but for many of us, we may have sung it many times. And, uh, you know, we, we sing those songs in interesting places. For some of us, when we talk about, I'm going to see a victory in it as well, that describes where you find yourself this morning, right? That you've been praying for something, and God has responded, and He's provided, and you're grateful for what He's done. And you feel peace because there was something you were stressed about and anxious about that he's worked on. And so you sing those songs because they capture to some degree what you're, you're feeling. But then there's a lot of others of us and even those who are feeling good things this morning. We, we sing those songs as people of hope, right? We, we sing those songs no matter how great we are today. There are still things that are not well with our souls and there are still areas in which we don't see victory. And that doesn't mean that those words aren't true. That just means we live in an already not yet. And the final fulfillment and realization of those songs that we've sung isn't necessarily today, but it's one day. It's one day. And so we sing those songs as people, many of us, pressing into Jesus, looking ahead to what he has yet to do and what he will do when we do see him again, like the song it is well said. And so uh, that's a great dovetail to what we've been studying for months together. We're in the book of Revelation. And if you're visiting Calvary for the first time, what we do as Calvary is we open up a book of the Bible and we go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we're in Revelation. And we've been there for a while. And <clears throat> my quick math tells me we're maybe a little more than halfway, which means we have another halfway to go. So we'll still be in Revelation. But I'm enjoying it. Uh, I know at least two of you are enjoying it. And I'm glad that more than two of you come by to hear what God has for you. And so um, let me just, uh, again, welcome you. Let me say a few things. What we do here at Calvary Church is we are striving to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. And if for whatever reason you're like, man, I've been to Calvary for a while, or this is my first week, but like, what are those guys about? I'm trying to figure them out. How do they do things? We would love to invite you to something that's going to be right after this service, approximately 1030-ish, uh, in a room over there. It's called a Newcomer's Brunch. And so if you're visiting first Sunday, you'd love to meet some staff, hear from some of our leadership, get a quick overview of what, how we can serve your family, what we're trying to do. We'd invite you to that. Um, if you've been here for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and you're like, man, I feel God calling me to this church, we'd invite you to that. And then next week, we're going to kind of launch out of that, and we're going to start an intro to Calvary class. That's then going to meet for five weeks. And if you come today, you don't have to come for the five weeks. If you don't come today, you can still come for the five weeks. But this class is really going to dig deep into what do we believe? How do we do things? How are we led? How are we structured? How are we pressing into that strategy? What are we celebrating that God's doing? And great chance for you just to hear about how you can get involved in building a body and growing as a disciple and what we're doing to reach and impact other people. Um, and if you've been here for a while and you're like, man, I keep hearing about this thing called membership. What's that about? Why should I bother doing that? Then you should come to this class and find out. All your questions will be answered. Maybe not. So that's kicking off um, <clears throat> after that. We'd invite you to that. And as we think about how we build a body and care for a body and make disciples and reach an impact, we've got 
an amazing team that serves together. And a couple of weeks ago, we got to celebrate Andrea Almeida, who has served faithfully in her role on staff for over a decade, and that was a beautiful time. And we're just so excited how God, uh, God's sovereign. And when he leads some person in one direction, he's always faithful, it seems, to have somebody waiting uh, to jump in. And so we're just grateful. Amy Habouche has been on our team serving as a nursery director. And when we learned that, Amy, uh, that Andrea was going to transition out, then Amy, we were so pleased, was willing to step into some of her roles and responsibilities. And so we're just thrilled that Amy Habouche is serving as one of our ministry assistants and helping oversee a ton of the office and a ton of connecting people. And so she will be the one fielding a bunch of your calls. And so if you hear somebody saying, thank you for calling Calvary Church, this is Amy, you will now know who she is. So we just are grateful that she's jumping on and excited about what God's done in her role as nursery director and just the great way she's contributing to our team. And as we think about being a body, that means that we want to be cared for and connected. And part of that is just knowing the good moments and the hard moments in people's lives. And so a couple many years ago, we started this new policy. We just can't, on a Sunday morning, uh, go through every single need that people are facing, uh, because there's a lot of them. And so we have different environments to try to serve and, and meet those needs and pray for those needs. But what we, because of some of you wisely suggested it, what we do do is we announce when a member of Calvary Church has died. And so... Uh, There has been an incredibly faithful servant of God, a man named Ray Card, who some of you may not know, but some of you may know who, man, Ray could get up here and teach the book of Revelation better than I can, but just so faithfully served so many of you in in so many ways, and just a man who uh, had some hardships in his life in terms of health, uh, but now he is experiencing that it is well with his soul, because this past week he went home to go see Jesus. So, um... Glad for him that he is no longer living by hope or by faith, but living by sight. Uh, But we can be praying for his family. Wanted to let you know that. There's no services planned, but uh, just wanted to inform some of you who know Ray. So let's get into the text. Let me pray, and then we'll see what God has for us this morning. Uh, Father, we're grateful, again, to be able to come together as a body. And uh, thank you that we can pause amidst the busyness of our schedules, to come and to be with other people and to be in your presence. And we don't want this to be a wasted time, and we know you don't want to waste this time. You, you would not want us to come and not learn and grow from you. And so um, those who lead worship and those of us who preach, Father, we're powerless to encourage people or to exhort people or to teach people. We're dependent upon your Spirit working through us. And so that's what I pray. And you know your text You know the day that each person would be sitting in this room and what they would be experiencing, and you want to grow all of us. And so, Father, through the power of the Spirit, will you work in our time? Um, We pray for the Card family as they're processing this loss and grieving this loss. We know you promised to be close to the brokenhearted. Um, And so will you just be close to the family as they've entered this new season and uh, support them and be gracious to them. And help us now as we move into your word, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in premarital counseling, one thing I do with every couple that I ever have the privilege of marrying is we do these little grids, and we we talk a lot about expectations, expectations. So what I do is I have the couple, I have like a box of 
man, probably 25 or 30 different things that they're supposed to answer, and they're supposed to answer it separately, and they range from the most uh, significant decisions, like asking couples going into marriage, what do you think about uh, abortion, or what do you think about this scenario, and then there's some of the questions that are most trivial, like... Who's going to clean the bathrooms, right? And the reason that I do that is because what is important, I think, for those cleaning bathrooms is not trivial, by the way. That's very important. If I come to your house and the bathroom isn't clean for like seven years, we're going to have to do a little pastoral counseling. But the reason that we do that is because what I've seen in my own story and what I've seen in a lot of other people's story is a huge source of conflict in marriage and relationships is unmet expectations, Many times there'll be a young lady and a young guy who are all googly-eyed in love, and they get married, and then as soon as they're married, they have all sorts of expectations about like what their spouse is going to do or what their spouse is not going to do. But the problem is, many times, many of those expectations haven't been stated, and not only haven't they been stated, but they haven't been met. And so a huge source, and what I've seen, of conflict and challenge and speed bumps in marriage is unmet and unstated expectations because people just assume things about certain things and what it'll be and when it doesn't happen like that there's confusion and I think that that carries over not just in marriage but it extends to a huge all sorts of different aspects and all sorts of different realities in life and I think for those of us who are followers of Jesus it extends to our own walk with Jesus that many of us, if we become Christians and when we become Christians, we do have certain expectations of what being in a relationship with Jesus will be like. And many of those are valid. Many of those are based upon Scripture. Many of those are fair expectations. But I think sometimes we have expectations that aren't linked with Scripture. It's just what we expect. It's just what we hope for. And then when something in our lives or in our story goes away we didn't think, we become frustrated or discouraged because we had an expectation of what God would or would not allow to happen that has happened, and we kind of spiral a little bit. Well, this morning, we're going to be in a passage, and in today's text, what it seems like God's doing is setting some expectations for us. What he's doing in today's text is he's shooting us straight, and he's saying, hey, I'm going to tell you about what's coming up, right? I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to bait and switch you. I'm just going to set your expectations and manage your expectations so that you don't feel like I've thrown a curveball or let you down. And so that's what we're going to think about and work through a couple of expectations that God sets in uh, his text today. The, the text is Revelation chapter 11, 1 through 14. We are in Revelation chapter 11, 1 through 14, because before Easter, the last verse we talked about was Revelation 10, verse 11. And right after Revelation 10, verse 11, comes Revelation 11, verse 1, and we're going to go through 14, and that's where we're going to be. But let's do this, and let's just kind of, we've had Easter, we've had, we've had Easter egg hunts. Oh, and by the way, you guys are awesome, okay? And here's why you're awesome. I mean, I know you all know you're awesome, but here's one reason I'll affirm your awesomenity, because we had in that lobby that we were so excited about for the past two years this way that we really felt God was going to allow us to reach and impact people uh, through these, these eggs, right? Egging somebody. And man, you guys stepped up and we had 200 cartons of, of eggs. And it's my understanding that every single carton was primarily taken by one of you and some of you. And so, man, we've got 200 families throughout the community 
that you have shown love to through that project. And what I'd encourage you to do this week is if you put those eggs on somebody's yard or give them to a neighbor or did some deal with it, will, will you just pray for them? Whatever family, you put that egg on the yard. We don't want it to be a one and done. Just keep praying for them, okay? Um, and so maybe in being so excited to go hide eggs and making sure you didn't get attacked by your neighbor's pit bull when you were wandering around their yard with your eggs, maybe you're like me and you ate more ham in the past you know, week than you've eaten in your entire 32 years of existence, okay? But Easter's come, and so maybe some of you are like, yeah, remember we did Revelation, but what was it about? Well, you're lucky because we're going to review this morning, all right? So here's where we've been in the book of Revelation so far. We started with chapter 1, and before we really got into that, we just kind of did this background of the book. Who wrote it? When was it written? What do we need to know as we approach it? And we said that there's three or four big ways of approaching the book, right? You've got to know what lens are we going to look at when we read all these things that we read in Revelation. And, and we talked about two main different perspectives, uh, two of the most popular perspectives. And the first one was called the preterist, right? So very first week or two, we said, how do we even walk into this book? And we talked about some ways that other people do, one of which is the preterist view. If you go out to lunch today at a diner, just somewhere in your order, drop the word preterist, okay? Just be like, man, I love my eggs over easy, rye toast buttered, preterist, and then some cream for my coffee, please. Here's what the preterist view is. The preterist position, when you're thinking about, we're reading a lot of stuff about seals and how do we understand it? The preterist position says that John, who is on this island, wrote this book, this letter, around this time frame, right? An early date, 54 to 68 AD. And a lot of the future symbolic things that he's working through referenced what was coming down the road in Nero's reign and the way that Nero was going to teach, the way that Nero was going to interact with Christians, right? So this view says that John wrote, and John wrote in an early date before Nero, and what all a lot of the symbolic stuff is about is about what has happened in history in Nero's reign when Nero did certain things to persecute Christians and harm them and a lot of symbolism about that. And yes, there is some stuff about the future and to come into an eternal state, but a bunch of the book is about that. This is a compelling view. The reason you may recall, you may not recall we didn't take it is because it doesn't seem like John wrote the book then. It seems like John actually wrote the letter mid or after Nero's reign. And so what we said for this book, anybody remember what position we're taking for the book? What view? What perspective? Oh, yes. When somebody teaches, to actually hear at least one person somewhat mumble the right answer is just so encouraging. We're taking the futurist view, and I'll be honest with you. If it wasn't for the dating of the letter, I'd be in the preterist camp. But I, I think that the letter was written, for a variety of reasons, as, as do lots of scholars, after Nero's reign. So you can't be predicting Nero's reign if that already happened, right? So this view says that, hey, sorry, I didn't fix it. We're living here in 2023, and a lot, every, what is predicted is dealing with things that are to come at the end of our world story and at the end of biblical history, right? So... There are things beyond us that we have not yet experienced that are things yet to come. That's the position we've taken for the book. And so once we kind of laid that groundwork, we started cracking open and going through the book. And so here's where we've been so far in the book. 
On the next slide. Mm, amazing picture, amazing. All right, so we started um, background in Revelation 1, then saw this picture of Jesus. Then Revelation 2 to 3 deals with seven actual churches that were in existence at the time that John wrote the letter. That's part of why we can set the dating of the letter based on what's going on in the churches. He writes to churches in going on in real time, and he's like, hey, here's some things you guys need to fix. Then we moved out of that, and we saw this amazing scene of the worship of God in Revelation chapter 4. Just these realities and these truths about God's sovereignty and God's power. And then we started to move into a little bit of future things. There was a situation where it was time to fix things and make it right. And the question was, who's worthy to open the scroll? And people are looking around, and then Jesus steps up, and it's determined that Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. And as he starts to peel off things off the scroll, the first thing he peels off are these seven seals. And this is this moment where there's this big word called tribulation that is a period of time we're saying that is yet to come. And each of these seals seems to trigger these horrific moments in world history that are associated with the yet-to-come tribulation. And so we walked through those seven seals. We had um, this question that was the question on everybody's mind, and maybe again as we move into today, well, I'm a Christian... That doesn't sound fun. Am I going to be here? Right? And we talked about that. And you may remember what God has promised, we'll talk about today, is he has promised to protect his people from his wrath. So when there's punishment on the earth that are part of his wrath and his punishment of sin, Christians will be protected from that. The question is, how will he protect us? You may remember that visual aid that caused me to break a vacuum cleaner that now two pastors in the surrounding community are going to steal, okay? They're stealing it. That's good. I gave them permission to. But if you hear, like, they're going to put it on Facebook or something because they're cool, right? And if you hear all these people like, oh, my pastor did this cool illustration, just remember where you saw it first. The illustration was, it's either removing from, <clears throat> or we had confetti and we covered it, protecting through, right? The way that we will not experience the wrath of God, one way potentially could be God will remove us from the earth through something called the rapture. That's why it's kind of there. But we put it in question marks because as I studied the text, what it could be. But as I studied the text, what it seemed like is actually that word protect you from, keep you from, in other places is not removal from, but is keeping you where you are, but particularly shielding you through it, shielding you through it. And we threw confetti and we were protected. Could be a rapture, could not be a rapture. We worked through the seven seals, <clears throat> then we worked through the six trumpets, which are further ongoing things uh, to come during that tribulation period. Then, <clears throat> last week in chapter 10, God calls a timeout. God calls his parenthetical, or before Easter in chapter 10. John's tired. John's been ministering faithfully. John has a lot of heaviness, which seems to imply in the text about what's to come. And God kind of just gives him a pause. And he encourages John that this is what you're called to do, John. And then he tells John, and at the end of this verses, he's like, now, John, man, you got to press on, bro. I know it's hard. I know this is heavy. I know this is weighing on you, but press on, press on. And then at the end of chapter 10, we paused and we started thinking about Easter. And now we're back in chapter 11. And chapter 11 is another parenthetical thing. It, doesn't, it does not push forward 
the chronology of what's to come. It's a footnote. It's a parenthetical that God is going to drop into the text to state some realities and to set some expectations. All right? So, with that said, here's where we've been. We're in chapter 11. Let's think about this next parenthetical. And here's how Revelation 11 verse 1 begins. Then... I was giving a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and those who worship there. Um, Interestingly, this staff that people would measure with in this culture, it was kind of like a skinny piece of bamboo, okay, like a skinny bamboo dowel, if you will. Um, I had some amazing guys at my house this past week who were installing this big window. Uh, We have this big window. And a winter or two ago, we felt this chilly draft. And we're like, huh, that's unique. And then we looked at the window, and our 30-plus-year-old house decided that the sill on which the window was resting was a little tired. And so it was just going to rot and give out. And so sometime in the middle of winter, that sill went, the window went clunk, and there's like this inch of thing. I caulked it, but it's not going to last forever. So dudes were over at this, the house so kindly working on this window, fixing the window. And you people who do construction work, they are smart. They are measuring things, and they're like, yeah, I got 11 7 eighths, and I got 3 sixteenths and 42 57 and I need to cut an inch off. I'm like, whoa, like... I know what a centimeter is, right? I am not smart enough to do construction because I can't measure. You guys are doing ratios and proportions, and it's crazy, right? The measuring. In this culture, in this context, when this angel delivers this message from God to John to measure the temple of God, is he telling John to pull out his tape literally, hey, John, pull out your tape and go tell me if it's 11, 7, 8, 4, 16, 1 and a quarter, 2 and a half inches, what... No, he's not telling John to literally walk down somewhere and measure something. This word throughout Scripture is often used symbolically to convey something, okay? I am able to measure, right, to, if I wanted to, I could go home and I could measure the opening of the window in my house because that is my house. It would be very strange of me to walk into your house and randomly start measuring things, because I don't own your house, right? That is your possession. In Scripture, a lot of times we've seen previously, this idea of measuring something is really just symbolic to show that you have ownership over it, right? If you're told to measure something or I'm going to measure something, what it's saying is I have possession over that. I have ownership over that. If you're a person who scribbles in the margin of your Bibles or takes notes, we see the same thing happen in two other places. We won't read it, but you can scribble it down if you want. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, and Ezekiel 40 to 42. Ezekiel 40 to 42. In both of those places, God is trying to convey what he has possession of, and he's using this symbol, this analogy of measuring something. But along with that, It's not just saying that you have possession of something. Often when the word to measure something is used in Scripture, what it's showing is also, hey, and I'm going to take care of that something. I'm going to protect that something. I'm going to shield that something. I am going to measure something to symbolically convey that it's mine. 
that I'm in charge of it, that I'm over it. And along with that, along with that ownership, what this term often conveys is this idea of not only do I own it, but I'm going to protect it. I'm going to take care of it because it's mine. Symbolically, it seems what God is doing is trying to convey at this point as a parenthetical that, hey, I have ownership of the temple, and I'm going to take care of that temple, which then raises this question, well, what in the world is that temple that's being referenced, right? What in the world is that temple that's being mentioned? There's three different views. We got a slide. Here's the slide. Scholars think that the temple symbolically may refer to three different things. Uh, Those who are in the preterist view who think that this book talks about what Nero did to the church think that the temple is symbolically referencing Christians when Jerusalem was destroyed. Then those who are taking the futurist view have two different kind of takes on it. There's one, when you get into this futurist view, there's like 42,000 different camps. One of those camps thinks that in the tribulation period that an actual temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. So there's a lot of teaching that there's going to be an actual temple, that's a hammer by the way, uh, being built in Jerusalem. There is nowhere um, in Revelation or any prophetic books that say in plain language there is a temple that will be built. There are places that reference sacrifices in a temple, and so people think that means they have to build a temple. So there's some people who think there's an actual temple going to be rebuilt. Then there's another big view that thinks that this symbolically the temple is referring to Christians in the tribulation period, right? God's going to protect something. God wants us to know he's got ownership of something and care for something, protection of something. Some think that that was how he protected Christians when Jerusalem was destroyed. Other people think what he's saying he's protecting and has ownership of is an actual brick-and-mortar temple. And then other people think what he's saying he's protecting will be Christians in the tribulation period. This last one is pretty compelling to me because several times in Scripture, We, as Christians, do you know what we're referred to as? Take a guess. God, you are so much smarter than the late service will be. (laughs) All right. Yes, right? Let's look at a couple of verses that talk about Christians being the temple of God. Go ahead. Pop that up. Do you not know? Now, I know some of you. I already felt it. The minute that first verse went up, I know some of you are going to be angry at me, but don't be angry because I'm going to tell you the truth. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This is a verse, okay, this you, it's not singular. It's y'all, okay? Again, whenever I do that, I know a few of you New Yorkers and Westchester are like, what? Okay, ready? I'll make you guys, okay? (laughs) This is a plural term, okay? It is good to exercise. Did you know that? It is good to avoid a Big Mac every meal of every day. But this verse has nothing to do with how you take care of your individual body. (laughs) I know some of you are mad because somebody's asked you, can you get a tattoo? And you're like, you are God's temple. No. Okay. Yeah. Not this verse, right? This verse is a plural you. It is a y'all. It is you guys. It is you as a group as Christians, plural, as a body, all of you are God's temple. Then later on, 
we see the same idea, right? What, for we, we being plural, <clears throat> are the temple of the living God. So several times in Scripture in the New Testament, we see Christians, group of collective Christians, being referred to as God's temple. And so I think it's pretty good. It makes sense that we would continue that understanding, right? So I think when he says, hey, measure the temple, what that symbolic language is trying to convey to the readers of this book and to John's book is that, hey, Christians who are reading about these things, who in your own story are already facing persecution, you belong to me. I got you. And if I got you, I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to take care of you spiritually. I know you. I care for you. I'm reminding you of what I've told you several times. You are never going to experience my wrath during this period and your future in heaven, all the future promises that we're looking towards. Man, it is locked and loaded. It is, you, those will never slip away from you. He's reminding Christians that I will protect you from the wrath, right? You're never, no matter what happens in your life, you are, no matter how good or how bad, you are never going to fall out of a relationship for me. You never have to worry about whether I love you. Your eternity is secure with me. Fourth time, he's reminding Christians in this book that, eter- that spiritually, he's got them. He's done it in, and again, you can scribble this down if you want, Revelation 3.10, Revelation 7 verses 2 through 3, and Revelation Chapter 9, verse 4, is this idea of Christians. I'm going to take care of you. Spiritually, you're secure. You're not going to experience my wrath. So here's the first point in this, right? God will protect Christians spiritually during the Great Tribulation, meaning they will never experience His wrath. They will never fall out of a relationship with Him. They will always be His people. Now, This means, we've said this a few months ago, that if God is saying, I'm going to protect Christians spiritually during the tribulation, guess what? That means there are going to be Christians during the tribulation. I'm foreshadowing a bit. In a couple of chapters, we're going to read about martyrs who are martyred for their faith in Jesus during the tribulation period, which means there are people during the tribulation who believe in Jesus. Is that because they became Christians during the tribulation? Could be, sure, probably some people. Does that mean that that's because God actually doesn't rapture people out, but in some way he protects them through? Could be. But either way, there's going to be people who believe in Jesus during the tribulation period. But, but, and this is where God's setting our expectations. This is where God's like, do you want me to lie to you or do you want me to shoot you straight? Right, I, <clears throat> I never liked it. <laughs> we, okay, so I got to be careful because some of my family watches these video streams. <laughs> oh man, are we having a technical failure all of a sudden? Okay, I had a, I, I had a grandmother. Did you know that? I had a grandmother. Lo- adored my grandmother. My grandmother, man, if there was essential oils back in the 30s or 40s, I mean, she would have been its biggest proponent, okay? I mean, she was like into organic food before all you hipsters even know how to spell the word, okay? She, she was far, I mean, if there was a health food trend to like 
chase a hummingbird and open his beak and get one drop of nectar that's half digested, and that will cure you of your cold. She was out there getting an eyedropper full of stuff to try to do that, okay? And sometimes when I wasn't feeling well, she'd be like, hey, try this concoction. Okay. She was not Italian, but you did not mess with her. <clears throat> if grandma told you to try a concoction, you'd be like, okay, is it good? This is what she would say. Oh, it tastes great. Okay. And then you would try a sip of this cod liver oil, hummingbird saliva, garlic tincture, apple cider vinegar concoction from the bad place, and it would scald your mouth, and you would be like, this is not good. And she'd be like, oh, huh, okay, right? I would rather have just said, this is going to be the most disgusting thing you've ever had in your life, but if you don't take it, I'm going to spank you. If you do take it, I'll take you out for ice cream, okay? I can navigate that. (laughs) Just shoot me straight, right? Well, what God is doing is he's saying, guys, I'm going to shoot you straight. And it's going to be hard, but I'd rather have you process this challenging news and this challenging information now and not be in the thick of experiencing what you might experience and then think that I lied to you or let you down and have your expectations be misaligned. Right? God will protect Christians spiritually during the Christian tribulation, but the very next verse shows us that does not mean that this is going to be an easy thing. <clears throat> because the very next verse says these words, but don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Do not measure the court. Leave that out because that's given over to the nations. This is a reference to people who are opposed to God, a reference throughout Scripture of uh, people who God adores and loves and wants to have a relationship, but these are people that are not in a relationship with God and are opposed to the things of God. And what he's saying is like, look, there is a group of people, and I don't own them, right? They're not my people. They're opposed to my people. And what that group is going to do is they're going to trample the holy city for a period of time. This word trample, it's like, it's not just like, ugh, it's like crush, devastation, right? Kind of scorched earth after they're through. Now, what God's saying is, look, the reality is that I'm going to protect you because you're mine spiritually. I care for you, but there are people who are not in relationship with me, who are opposed to me and my people, who will be allowed to trample this. So what is the holy city? What are they going to cause harm against? Well, some scholars think it's actually Jerusalem, where these enemies of God are going to go back into the city of Jerusalem and harm the people of God in that city, whether they're Jewish people of God or Gentile people of God. Some people think that this is just a general reference again to all Christians, not the city of Jerusalem, its inhabitants, but just broader, all Christians. But regardless If it's the city of Jerusalem and the inhabitants who are Christians or all Christians, what it's going to show is that there are going to be a group of people who are opposed to the work of God, who are opposed to the people of God, who will be given freedom for a certain period of time to trample the people of God, to harm the people of God. 
First thing that we saw that God promises is that God will protect Christians spiritually in terms of his wrath and their relationship during the tribulation. But what God seems to be saying here is the second point, that God will not shield his people from facing any or all persecution during the tribulation. God will not shield his people from facing any or all persecution during the tribulation. God setting our expectations. He will protect his people spiritually during the tribulation, but will not shield his people from facing any or all persecution during the tribulation. So what do we do with this? Well, what do we do? Okay. Yikes. What do we do with that? Here's two thoughts of what we do. We do this. Be prepared for persecution that may come. Be prepared in your story and in my story and in the story of our church and in the story of God's bigger church for persecution that may come and be confident that eternity with God will come. Be prepared for persecution that may come. Be confident that eternity with God will come. Let's think for a minute about persecution. There's a difference between persecution for our faith and pushback for our faith. Okay? Sometimes what we do um, in the United States is we face pushback for our faith and we call it persecution for our faith. Those are two different categories. There's a difference between persecution for our faith and pushback for our faith. And if you are a person of faith, this has been true in every generation. Okay, I'm not saying that this is the worst cultural moment ever. There have been some really, really bad cultural moments in the past. But if you're a Christian, you will be likely face pushback for your faith. You will face pushback for your faith. If you say, this is what I believe. Now, if you're like, ah, maybe it's true. Ah, yeah, you ain't going to get no pushback. But if you stand for this, right? My, my little, if you say, this is the authority over me. I'm not un over it. It's not equal to me. This is the authority. I submit to it. I think it's actually true. I think it's actually true because I actually think historically a guy named Jesus came back from the dead, which kind of ties this all together. If we stand for that, no matter what cultural moment in which we've lived, we will face pushback. We will. And in some moments, in some realities, pushback is not persecution, but pushback can morph and build into persecution. We have people who have been at Calvary, who have left Calvary, who have gone back to other places to live, who face true persecution for their faith. True persecution for their faith. We will face pushback. Pushback can merge into persecution. Expect pushback. Don't be surprised by it. I think that's what God's saying, like, I'm shooting you straight. It's going to taste bad. I'm not going to lie to you. So expect it. Jesus said this, John 16, 33. Uh, I, I remember this man. Many, many years ago, there's somebody who came to Calvary. I'm talking 
taught me this verse. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Peter is a guy who in the books of First and Second Peter, and I'm start, we're teaching some classes on Second uh, Peter. Man, these are great, rich books. If you're trying to figure out what to read in your own quiet time, uh, I've just finished going through Luke, and I'm going to start going through the Peters. They're great books. But Peter wrote about this. In Peter chapter 4, he said this, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Most scholars think that Peter was talking about what his readers may have been facing, but this also looks ahead to this tribulation period. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, right? Insofar as it tests you. But look what he says in verse 419, we should say. If you read all that, then in verse 19, he lands the plane and he tells us what to say, and he says these words. Don't be surprised by it. Therefore, here's the takeaway. Let those who suffer according to God's will. Let those who are persecuted, let those who have hardships, let those who go through the fiery trial by other people persecuting you for your faith entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Two things that he tells us to do, right? Entrust your souls and do good. In moments when good is not being done to you, in moments when you are facing hard times in life, in moments when those hard times in life are being caused by people who are persecuting you or pushbacking in you because of your faith, you're going to face it, he's saying. The issue is not whether you are going to face it. Guys, the issue is not whether we are going to face it. Okay. And we have to be wise about what we call persecution. Because if we cry wolf, we're doing ourselves a disservice and we're doing our brothers and sisters around the world who face persecution a disservice. If you get pulled over by the police, leaving here, leaving church, and you get a ticket because you don't have on your seatbelt or because you're talking on your cell phone, you are not being persecuted because you went to church this morning. But I mean that. <clears throat> I mean that. Because some of us, we go crazy, and, and we start going balloony tunes. Oh, gosh, I'm going to get fired. I think I feel the emails. I, you get this sense as a pastor. <clears throat> you start saying stuff, and you literally get the sense like, somebody's typing me right now. Dear Pastor Peter. Some of us, we get pulled over for doing something wrong. You did not get pulled over for talking on your cell phone because you left church. You got pulled over for talking on your cell phone because you're talking on your cell phone. But we call it persecution. We put it on social media, and we're doing ourselves a disservice because there is persecution that's going to come. Now, there is a line that has to be drawn. There is a flag that needs to be planted at some point in the story that says this is persecution and we are going to stand strong against it. But we dare not plant that flag too early because of being pulled over for talking on a cell phone because we lose our witness. We are going to face as Christians at some point, maybe not our generation, but there is persecution. It's not whether we will face it, it is what we do when we face it. And what we're supposed to do when we face it is 
entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Trust and do good. Trust and do good. If you're facing persecution this morning, if you're facing pushback for your faith this morning, right? Wherever that is. Push back for your faith in your private Catholic school. Push back for your faith in your private Christian school. Push back for your faith as a student in some homeschool co-op. Push back for your faith in a public school because there are Christians in all those environments and there are non-Christians in all those environments. There are people who align with God's will. There are people who don't. And if you're a student facing pushback in that place, what does it look like for you to do good, to do good. If you're a high-charging corporate person on the way up, right, taking over your thing, and you start to face pushback because of your ethics and your honesty and your integrity and your faith, what does it look like for you to do good? In the place in which you might find yourself today, getting pushback for your faith, in the place where one day you will find yourself getting pushback, what does it look like for you to do good in that situation? I'll tell you how to think about that from the flip side. What does it look like for you to respond poorly? What does a poor response to pushback look like? What is a good response? God-honoring response to being treated unfairly look like. If you want to know what it looks like to receive pushback and persecution for your faith and still respond in a good way, look at what Jesus did. Because we have a model. We have an example for that. Do good. Entrust your soul, second thing, to a faithful creator. And at some point... We all have to ask ourselves this question. That is a hard, which is a hard question. Do we trust God enough to suffer for him? Do we trust God enough to suffer for him? I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer, but God wants us to know that, this. And so what are we going to do, skip over something that's not pleasant that God wants us to know? We can't. Do I, do I trust God enough to suffer for him? Do you? And there are bold, courageous brothers and sisters around the world who answer that question in a heartbeat and say, yes, yes. Could I answer that question in a heartbeat by saying yes? I hope so. Is it, is anybody like, oh yeah, I'll take suffering with an extra mound of persecution, please. Uh, We do everything we can to avoid that. Do we trust God enough to suffer for him? I'm going to go quickly through the next part um, because I want to get through it and we'll be okay. So give me, give me another seven to eight minutes, okay? God then gives us, and I'm going to go quick because it's self-explanatory. So first part we've seen. Then God gives us this other reality about what's going to happen in the remainder of uh, up until verse 14. And he shifts gears a little bit and he then says this. 
And I'm just going to read a lot of this and explain as we go along. So first part is there's going to be suffering, right? But I got you. I'm going to take care of you ultimately, eternally. Then second big picture in this parenthetical starts in verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth and ashes. So God then says, hey, let me give you another snapshot of what's going to happen. There's going to be two witnesses who prophesy this, during this tribulation period for a certain period of time. Prophesy does not necessarily mean here they're going to predict the future. Prophesy means they're going to be in the, they're going to do what he's warning. They're going to stand up for their faith and they're going to, they're an example of standing up for their faith, proclaiming truth and being persecuted. They're going to say to people, y'all are sinning. There's a God who adores you and you're knuckleheads. You need to repent. You need to deal with your sin. You need to come to God. God's going to give authority to these witnesses who are going to do this. Scholars are split on the witnesses. Some people think they're actual two people. Um, and then when you go down that track, there's all sorts. Some people are like, it's Elijah and Peter and two actual people. Other people think the witnesses are, again, the church. The larger body of Christ during the tribulation will be the ones calling people to turn to God to a relationship with him. Could be the church in this position if you asked me to take a stand, I would say it's two actual people, okay? Regardless of what it is, there are going to be these people in this moment who are God's remnant, God's, God's representatives who are standing in this culture trying to tell people about the love of God and the heart of God and that God cares for them and that God loves them and that there's a way to experience all that. These, and another reason some people say it's the church is because this idea of lampstands. Earlier, we've seen the church be lampstands. These witnesses are referred to as two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Two witnesses prophesying. Then we see what happens to these witnesses. Next slide, please. It says this. Wait, it doesn't. I got to read it all. Hold on. Flip, get that slide off there. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Okay. Here's what's going to happen. And if anybody, would, <clears throat> if anybody would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. Some people think it's literal fire. Some people think they're just calling God's judgment onto these opponents. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as they often die, desire. Many times in scriptures, we see miraculous supernatural things to validate the testimony of that message. And so there will be signs that will validate the testimony of this message. And when they had finished their testimony, again, interesting sermon there in itself about God's sovereignty and timing. When they have finished their testimony... Uh, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, okay? So beast is this reference to the Antichrist, okay? It's, it, this is the first time we're going to see it. We're going to see it, I think, 36, uh, 36 times going on from here, this enemy of God. God has his people in this place to proclaim his truth in this moment. They will face persecution from the enemy. They will actually be killed by the enemy, okay? First point, I got a little out of order, but that slide that we saw is this. First, another thing for us to understand. God commissions people to proclaim truth in challenging times, including during the tribulation. God has always had his people proclaiming his truth in challenging times during the tribulation. These people have done it. These people have suffered for it. And then look at what the text tells us is going to happen next. The beast, the Antichrist, is going to make war on them, whether it's the church or whether it's individuals. 
conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city that is symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, which in that culture was the most dishonoring thing that you could do. And those who dwell on the earth, this is really interesting, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice all right, over them that they're dead and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those people who dwell on earth. There are going to be a group of citizens who are like, I am so sick of hearing y'all talk about God and turning back to him. You're driving me crazy. I don't want to hear it. You're dead. And I'm glad I don't have to listen to another word you're telling to me. And they're going to be like, woohoo, we don't have to hear that nonsense anymore. That's sobering. That's sobering. Those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there's a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. And then look at this last part, last verse. This is what we end with. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified, but they gave glory to God in heaven. The rest of the people who weren't impacted or said, man, these guys were telling the truth. And we're going to respond to that truth. We're going to respond to the witnesses that God placed in this cultural moment who told us about truth, who were persecuted before it. And we're going to see all these things happen. And man, we now see that they were telling the truth and we're going to respond. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. And what we saw from this is that God commissions people to proclaim truth in challenging times and will do so during the tribulation. And for you and me... That's what it, this is what it means for us. Today, in this moment, if you're a follower of Jesus, be purposeful in kingdom proclamation and kingdom living where you are today. Be purposeful in kingdom living and kingdom proclamation where you are today because you know what? You know who God has placed in this cultural moment to be his witnesses for him? You. In case some of you were finishing up your wordle, do you know who God has placed in this cultural moment to be his witnesses for him? You. That's why our vision statement says we are his witnesses collectively, but individually. It's on you. God in his sovereignty has wired you a particular way like he's wired nobody else. God in his sovereignty has put you who you are, where you are, because there is a unique way that you can be a witness for him there that nobody else can be. And the challenge is, let's stop wasting time. Be purposeful. What have I done? And what have you done this past month? to purposefully live out Jesus' kingdom values where you are. What have you done this past month to purposefully live out Jesus' kingdom values where you are? Now, I, w- I want you just to think about this. When was the last time that you had a purposeful conversation with a non-Christian centered around God's truth? When was the last time? Last week? Last month, 
Last three months? And probably, if we're honest, a lot of us are like, look, I come to Bible studies a lot. I've read the book of Revelation 42 times a lot. Some of you are saying, I'm so comfortable in this. I can do church upside down and inside out, but that's not the question. When was the last time that I, when was the last time that you had a purposeful conversation with a non-Christian about kingdom truth, about truth? A week ago? A month ago? A year ago? There's an opportunity there for all of us. Not to be cheesy, but man, to live out the truth of God where you are and to proclaim the truth of God where you are. How can I do that more intentionally? And how can you do that more intentionally? And whether we want to do that, and if we do that, depends ultimately upon what we think of God. And whether we are willing to trust God when we face pushback depends ultimately on what you think about God. And if we really believe that God is good, and if we really believe that it is true, the goodness of God will compel us to share with other people about how good he is. And if we really think that God is good, then we will be willing to say to a God that we think is good, God, I don't like what's going on in my story. I don't want to face pushback. I don't want to suffer, but I will do so because I am willing to entrust my soul to a faithful creator that I believe is good. What we think about God is the most important thing we will ever think because it determines everything that you do. And so I'm going to invite you to stand and ask these guys to get to their instruments, and I'm going to pray. And then together we're going to end our times by celebrating, by affirming the goodness of God. We will affirm together as a community for ourselves and for one another that we think God is good. And if you don't actually think God is good, then this is a chance for you just to pray this in your heart. Holy Spirit, will you help draw my eyes to the goodness of you as I sing these words? May it not just be something I sing to be churchy, but may these be truths that impregnate themselves upon my soul that impact what I do for you. Father, thank you in your word. You reveal yourself as a loving, good God who serves us and gives himself for us. And I pray that your goodness and your character and your attributes and your love will impress themselves upon us deeply so that we will be bubbling over from that in how we live in this current moment. Father, thank you for hope and thank you for the spirit that sustains us until we realize that hope. May the song that we sing now be acceptable worship to you. Amen.